It's time for Supply Chain Now Radio, broadcasting live from the supply chain capital of the country, Atlanta, Georgia. Supply Chain Now Radio spotlights the best in all things supply chain. The people, the technologies, the best practices, and the critical issues of the day. And now, here are your hosts. Hey, good afternoon. Scott Luton here with you live on Supply Chain Now Radio. Welcome back to the show. On this episode, we're continuing our Vetlanta Voice podcast series where we focus on the veteran community, news, insights, challenges, and resources with a hint of supply chain, mostly because we're passionate about serving our fellow veterans and our veteran community. Quick programming note, like all of our series on Supply Chain Now Radio, you can find our replays on a variety of channels, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, YouTube, wherever else you get your podcasts from. As always, we'd love to have you subscribe so you don't miss anything. So let's quickly thank a few of our valuable sponsors that allow us to bring these best practices and really stories uh, to you, our audience. Verison, the effective syndicate, spend management experts, supplychainrealestate.com, TalentStream, and many more. You can check each of our sponsors out on the show notes of this episode. So let's welcome in my fearless co-host here today, Lloyd Knight, Director of International Air Freight LMG at UPS Global Forwarding and co-founder and president of Vetlanta. How you doing, Lloyd? Great rainy night in the uh, Vetlanta, the supply chain capital of the world. And do you have your soup ready for the family this evening? <laughs> so it's soup weather, right? It actually is. Well, we, we've got an uh, outstanding show lined up here tonight. Uh, let's welcome in our, our featured guest, uh, John Tian, Managing Director of Citigroup. John, how you doing? Good, good. Thanks for having me here. Excited you, to be here. We are, too. Uh, been reading through my, my homework, my pre-show notes. And, and you've got a fascinating story. Looking forward to dive more into that. And really a, a friend and colleague, Kevin Horgan, uh, retired UPS or Marine Corps veteran, Vetlanta boy, board member. I always enjoy our interactions, and you've got a fascinating story as well here, Kevin, to share with us. So welcome to the show. Thank you, Scott. You bet. Okay, so um, with that said, Lloyd, you know, we've got, uh, you know, you're, you did your, your uh, episode magic with laying out some of the conversational items we're going to dive into. Uh, so tell us more. Where do you want to start? Man, I was really excited to line up these two guests. They're, they're both well-accomplished in their military service, well-accomplished in the corporate world, and really importantly in their communities. Both are great patriots and, and good friends. As we talk with Kevin first, I have to tell you about my friendship bond and history with, mm. with Kevin, and this is a great story. So, you, you know, I've been involved in the veteran community for many years, and even our relationship predates Vetlanta. And one of the first big events I did at UPS, it was a, a transition event to help a, uh, veterans a, uh, with their resumes and, and with their network. And, and I didn't know Kevin. And Kevin, you know, made the drive up to my <laughs> building, and he shows up. And he, the next thing I know is he's harassing all these young Marines for not wearing their Marine Corps lapel pin. <laughs> and, and I look at him, and, and I was like, oh, my goodness. This, this is the last thing I need as a Marine in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you, you know what? I was so wrong because uh, Kevin is exactly what I needed. He's just like all Marines. You point him in the direction, mm. and, and he's going to make stuff happen. So I, I've had Kevin next to me 
um, for every expansion I've done of my veteran volunteerism efforts from the Veterans Business Resource Group, which I started the uh, at UPS, uh, on to uh, Vetlanta, and he's even on the uh, UPS uh, Veterans Steering Council, uh, which I took over in the beginning of this year, and it was he was the first one I tapped on the shoulder. Mm. So it's great to have him. So I've seen him in action, too, at some of those summits. And I think he tapped me on the shoulder to help uh, get all the room to sit down at one point in time. He doesn't waste any time with any of that kind of stuff, right? You point him in the right direction. As you said, he gets it done. Uh, so glad to have you on the show here to, uh, today, Kevin. So you know, Lloyd often jokes about how he didn't need any Marines in the Air Force, but now he really leans heavily on Marines. So tell us uh, uh, when, how, and why that you uh, became a Marine. Uh, thanks, Scott. I, I, I want to say right at the outset that I served for five years. I was an infantry officer, and I was never shot at. So I'm nothing special. Mm. Uh, I, I served. I was honored to do it, and being an officer of Marines was the great privilege of my life. I mean that. Mm. So a little historical perspective, I can, on, on why. Um, when I was in high school from 71 to 75, several things happened. The Vietnam War was closing down. The draft ended. They stopped sending active troops to Vietnam, and in April of 75, uh, the last troops in the embassy was evacuated from Saigon, and I, I graduated from high school a month later. Uh, and I was hell-bent on joining the Marine Corps, and my, for one reason, not because I wanted to be a Marine, it's because my father told me I couldn't do it. He, the ultimate challenge. That was, that was it right there. <laughs> and he really didn't want me to do it, but uh, he had served. He was an infantry officer in Korea. Uh, and and he, he, he served, and he hated being cold. That's, you know, my father's been gone for 35 years, mm. but uh, that was one of the things he really hated, and that was one of the things he brought back from him. Everybody has a, a moment they hated or something they hated, but he could not be cold, and that was that was one thing that, uh, that strikes me now just thinking back on it. Mm. So my reasons for joining the Marine Corps after I went to college, I went four years of college, Met my wife there. So uh, where'd you go? Uh, St. Bonaventure University in the magical and mysterious Allegheny foothills <laughs> of New York State. It's about two hours south of Buffalo, New York. It was great. It snowed every day from Halloween to Mother's Day. So you know, take it for what it's worth. But uh, it was great. Uh, it was great. It really was wonderful. The um, so my reasons were personal. Uh, there was at, at the risk of being too altruistic. There were no great frontiers in the late seventies. And like I said, it was nothing special. I had hair down on my shoulders back when I had hair. <laughs> God bless the old days. <laughs> and um, and I was you know I, I was running amok, doing what young people were doing then. And the job market was terrible. I had a degree in English literature. Um, the interest rates at the time were about fourteen percent, which is mind-boggling now. Um, so. I, I really had to do something, and I wasn't going to ride my bike to South America, and I wasn't going to fly a hot air balloon up into Canada. And I said, well, this is probably the last great frontier, mm. at least one that I could qualify for. So um, I joined. I just walked into the OSO office, and um, they said, well, you want to study for the test? You got If you don't pass the test, then... It, you know, it's a stupid test you take, you know, about shapes and all kinds of, I forget what it was. <laughs> it's a piece of cake. So they asked me, to, you know, well, you want to study for the test. If you fail it, you can't take it for another year. And I said, I'll take it right now. And I was pretty cocky and probably a little hungover. But <laughs> I took it. I passed three months later um, at OCS, you know, getting yelled at. That's that's pretty much the story. <laughs> wow. That's very cool. So, Kevin, a um 
you know, coming out of the Marines, you know, you you have a great transition story. Uh, can, can you talk a little bit about leaving your beloved Marine Corps and a uh, becoming an industrial engineer and mm-hmm. a UPS and then corporate real estate attorney, right? Which that boggled my mind uh, when I first met you. Those two things should never run in the the, the <laughs> same the circles. And and then you know you're you're moved to corporate headquarters in Atlanta, and then uh, from there. How did you get involved in in your community efforts? Because Kevin does so much more than the mm. veteran space. I mean, he, uh, he he's involved in his church, uh, f- feeding you know the, the hungry, homelessness so, surveys. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, he was oh, on yeah. the streets. Oh, together, yeah, we, we, we absolutely. <laughs> That's five good stories right there. <laughs> I um, uh, like I said, I'm really nothing special. I had decided to get out of the Marine Corps in the spring of '84. Um, uh, and my wife and I had two babies. We uh, and I was going to go to law school. That's what I wanted to do. I walked off the depot at the first week in August, and I'd only been a captain. I'd just been promoted. I was a regular officer. I, I'd just been promoted to captain, so I walked around MCRD San Diego like I was hot stuff, <laughs> uh, and I really wasn't. And then I uh, make the trip from San Diego to New York to move into my in-laws' basement. Uh, my wife and I and our two babies, and I was going to go to law school. So two weeks after arriving there, I started loading at n- trucks at night for UPS and going to law school uh, the same day. Wow. Part-time, part-time at night, and I was going with firemen and cops and mm. uh, transit workers and, you know, people that were just wanted to do something else with their lives. And I still really didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. The funny thing about living in my in-law's basement was my father-in-law, who was also, by the way, a Marine officer. Mm. Uh, he uh, he and I really didn't talk a whole lot, even though he knew I was dating his... He had eight daughters, so mm. he, he had to manage that. <laughs> but uh, he told me when we moved in, uh, he said, listen, my daughter and my grandchildren are, can stay for free, but you're $400 a month. Sweet. Yeah, and that was in 1984. 400 might as well have been a million. <laughs> I was making... I was pulling in about 800 clear a month. Mm. Um, loading trucks. So that's what I was doing. I was working on what they call the preload operation, which is from 3 to 8 in the morning, sunrise, if you will. Um, and after about a month of that, they asked me, how would you like to be a part-time supervisor? And I was already determining my exit strategy from UPS. It was it was 8 bucks an hour, which in 84 was a heck of a lot of money. Uh, but I still, I, I, needed, I needed to get out of my basement. The rent was killing me. So my in-laws basement. Uh, and they said, well, if you become a part-time supervisor right away, your benefits kick in right away. And I said, I'm your guy. <laughs> I had to uh, because, you know, my benefits ran out October the 1st, and everything was coincidental. If being a Marine Corps officer was a great privilege of, of my life, the great fortune of my life has been able to work for UPS. Mm. So within the year, I drove a package car for three months. Um, there's other stories that come along with that because I was going to law school at night. So I, I, I drove for three months, and I became an industrial engineer. Mm. They promoted me into that, not because I knew anything about engineering. I had a degree in English literature. Because, and, the, and that's where what's endearing about UPS and that kind of logistic company and the, uh, the Marine Corps, they have a motto, and, uh, and I'm going to segue just a little bit here to Jim Mattis' current book, uh, Call Sign Chaos. Mm. And he mentioned something in there that really sang to me uh, when he had recruiting duty, which I never got involved with. Um, the Marine Corps recruits for attitude and trains for skill. 
Well, so does UPS to a large degree. Mm. And that's what they did. They took a risk on me because I had a good attitude. Mm. And they trained me for anything they wanted me to do. So I was most fortunate there. I got out of my in-law's basement a year later, uh, not one second too soon. <laughs> and, uh, and, it, and the rest has been wonderful. The, I'm a corporate gypsy. I spent most of my career of the 33 years, I spent probably 27 years in operations and engineering. Um, going to different terminals and improving things. I was in what we called an industrial engineering mm-hmm. manager, which is really just a planning manager, uh, 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 like the S3. Mm-hmm. That's essentially what it was. So I was the S3. Um, and that was all over the country. So we moved six times, which was uh, great and awful because we moved also a couple teenagers during high school. And if mm-hmm. you want to know what screaming at dinner table and silence can both be deafening at the same time, <laughs> uh, it was – but my kids now are – well-rounded, well-developed. They have yes. families in their own. They're all successful, so all's great. They, they even apologize to us now for we were real jerks, Dad. We're sorry. And I was like, "Yeah, your mother still cries about it." But the um, as far as the, the the community, one of the things that UPS encourages of its directors is that even if you're just a gypsy uh, or a dilettante in some people's eyes, we're only going to be there for three years at a time, three, four, five years. You still have to you still have to join the tribe, mm-hmm. and uh, and I took that to heart, and I knew that was the right thing to do. So uh, I joined everything I could join that had something to do with giving back to the community. I also made a team building events with my people, and I had people you know usually a hundred people direct reports, and I would make that part of the camaraderie and team building for um, my business unit, and it, and. It, well, I, I like to think it worked out really well. Mm. Uh, so, and, and that's what it comes down to. Locally, I was serving on the board. I got uh, term limited out, I guess that's what you call it, for the Community Assistance Center in Sandy Springs, uh, Dunwoody. Uh, so I had two terms there. I was the vice president for a while. Um, and, and that is just a wonderful organization. Mm. Uh, and as Lloyd mentioned, I, um, I'm very involved with uh, our parish with a whole host of issues uh, and different ministries there, too. Uh, and, I, and not in leadership roles, because at this stage of my life, I prefer to be a worker bee. Mm. And that's pretty much what I do with Atlanta now, mm. is I do the things that Lloyd tells me to do. <laughs> and do it well. The, that the other people don't want to do. That's, that's kind of my role. You're the brains and the brawn of the group. <laughs> Uh, and also, you're an acclaimed, wherever you find a little bit of spare time you have, you're an acclaimed author. You've written two books. Uh, tell tell us a little bit of the Reader's Digest version, no pun intended, of both books, or maybe best maybe a bad example because Reader's <laughs> Digest might be ten pages. Give us in a nutshell uh, about the both books and why you chose. I will, and uh, you're being pretty loose and fast with the word acclaimed. I um, <laughs> it's it's uh, some people would say it's more of a hobby. So I wrote two historical novels on the Civil War with two unique aspects. The first one, the Northern Army. Uh, and the Invalid Reserve Corps, which Mm. were um, invalid um, servicemen Mm. who had had sacrificed greatly but still wanted to serve in uniform. So I wrote about them, a fictionalized account using the 18th Regiment, and uh, that's called The March of the 18th. The second book I wrote two years later uh, was about the uh, orphan uh, brigade of the Southern Army, coming out of Kentucky, led by uh, former Vice President John Breckinridge. So I profiled Breckinridge in the book, uh, and I did fictionalize some accounts, but I stuck 
right to the letter of the Battle of Stones River. In fact, I, I have a, uh, a golden blurb from the historian at Stones River who said that my account of the battle is accurate, mm. which, is, which is huge. Because if you know any Civil War buffs, they're, they're very serious people. So these were, this is something I always wanted to do. Um, I, uh, that it's not the career path I chose because I can tell you, I've sold about 3,000 total books. You're going to get a couple lunches out of that. that you're not going to get much else. Um, but, yeah, thanks for asking. You bet, Kevin. So, so they're, they're both easy reads, and I can say uh, two rum drinks on the beach for each, <laughs> and uh, I loved them. So thanks, Kevin. The, Thank uh, you. And the, uh, John, turning to you, uh, one of my favorite uh, memories of you is actually uh, being together with Roger Rowley telling stories. And, a, uh, you know, the first time I saw you both together, I just sat back and, and listened. And a, uh, for our listeners, Roger is a uh, regional director at Four Block, uh, re- retired from corporate America. And a, um, we've mentioned Four Block in, in mm-hmm. past episodes. They really help veterans that transitioned out of the military into college and now are helping them transition into the workforce. So the uh, Roger is a retired Army Command Sergeant Major from the uh, – and nineties, and then Sergeant Rowley and the uh, and and John as a lieutenant shoot some of the same dirt in the Middle East, and have these incredible stories about combat operations in Desert Storm. John, you started off at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, spent over a decade in Europe and the Middle East, mm. deployed with three combat tours to Iraq, and you were amazingly a Rhodes Scholar, and then also a professor of political science back at the academy, and then a, uh, you spent. Uh, Several years working at the White House under two administrations, President George uh, W. Bush and President Obama. Why did you join the Army? And did you ever in a million years uh, figure that would be a, a career path for you, everything you've done? You know, it's the uh, thanks, Lloyd. And and by the way, I love uh, Kevin's stories. Mm. I, I'm not even sure I should even go at this point. Right. <laughs> I think we should just I should uh, concede my time to the gentleman uh, <laughs> on my right here and hear some more cool stories. It's uh, especially I, I love your fathering things. I'm the father uh, of uh, two daughters. and I mm. totally agree. It can be um, a lot of noise at the table and silence. And I would rather have the noise because at least I know the enemy I'm dealing with at that point. <laughs> Amen. You can Amen. see it in front of you. Who nice. knows what's going on? in their minds but both girls i would say the same thing kevin is that they are in great shape now they both graduated from college as I, and i say success in today's for today's millennials are if they pay for their own starbucks mm. right you know because <laughs> if you can justify paying something for it i love starbucks you know <laughs> yes uh, sir but if you can say hey I, i'll pay five dollars for a cup of coffee then good to go you're doing something right in life um you know, Lloyd, one of the reasons I, uh, it, it was interesting, I did not come from a military family. I uh, was uh, living in Southern California. I was going to high school, dating uh, now my wife, you know, having a good time. I was going to go off to one of the University of California schools, and I was a sophomore playing uh, wide receiver on the college football or on the high school football team and running track and just living a typical Southern California life. Not a great surfer, but like the beach. <laughs> and uh, my, but my parents had gotten divorced when I was pretty early, when I was three years old and I'd grown up largely with an Irish Catholic stepfather and my mother but my father had was a uh, had was an immigrant from China way back in the 50s right mm. way back in the 50s he'd come over he was nationalist Chinese run out of town so to speak by the communist and eventually ends up 
uh, in the United States of America. He pulls me aside. Uh, we're lifting weights sort of in the, in the basement, you know, he in his basement. I went to go visit him. And he said, where are you thinking about going to college? Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, I've got the University of California, you know, UCLA, uh, Berkeley, UC Irvine, Cal State Long Beach. I listed all these schools, m- most of the places where I could stay close to my girlfriend, right? So I was not a strategic <laughs> thinker at that point. I was just driven by love. Yeah. And um, he said, I really think you should consider West Point. And I had a vague notion of what that was. And I said, that sounds like a, a lot of uniform and a lot of marching from what I can tell. And I, I didn't even done high school or TC, right? And I said, why do you think I would be, why would you think I'd want to do that? He says, and then my father, who was a college professor, said, it's not whether or not you would want to do it. It's whether you should do it. Mm. So he moved very quickly. Uh, I didn't recognize, I didn't use these terms because I wasn't as smart then, right? But he moved very quickly from the empirical to the normative. He mm. went from the, you know, the what to the ought and, and said, you really should consider it. And I thought, okay, all right, what's the next sentence here? And, and I said, why should I consider it? And he said, you wouldn't be here if the United States of America had not accepted our family as immigrants in the 1950s, along with many others coming mm. through Angel Island off of the, uh, the Northern California coast or Ellis Island, much better known, uh, and the Statue of Liberty coming off the New York City coast uh, and port. And, and he said, so it is our obligation to find a way to continue to give back to the United States of America. And, and he had done some things. He joined the military very quick tour back in the 1960s, and he said, but you're, you, know, you need to continue that legacy, at least consider it, right? So I said, okay, I'll, I will consider it. I'll throw it into the mix. And I figured, I looked it up. It was pretty easy. We didn't have internet back then, right? But uh, <laughs> you can look it up pretty quickly and realize. Dewey Decimal System. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just look at these Barron's College books and I said, oh, man, these are really high standards. And I was an okay student, an okay athlete, but I am never going to make this cut. So I'll apply. And I dutifully applied, went through the process. Long story short, I get a nomination uh, from my local congressman in Southern California. And, and now it's just, now it's momentum and it's mm. building up. And then I started doing more research. And at the end of the day, I chose, I said, I'll go. I will go and it will, I went out of an obligation. I graduated and I know it sounds like a corny line. I, I entered out of obligation and I left four years later realizing it was a privilege to serve mm. the United States of America wearing our, uh, the nation's colors. Outstanding. So that's, that's why I went into the military. Why did I stay? Uh, I don't know, if, that, or if you ask that question, I'd be happy to answer it. So we're going to fast forward a little bit because we're going to talk about your transition story. I think uh, of, of these shows here at the Vetlanta Voice podcast series, one of the things, and, and, and outside of digital media, we're fascinated with transition stories, sure. especially sure. in this era where we've got so many men and women getting out of the service that, um, you know, are struggling in, in, in many different aspects of that. So uh, tell us, how did you transition from the arm, Army into a very different role into managing director at Citigroup while all while, you know, all of these different engagements from Vetlana, the Warrior Alliance, the Mission Continues, uh, the Bob Woodruff Foundation. And you, clearly you've got a sense of service just like Kevin described. But talk about that transition for you. Yeah, the it's and, and I think it is uh, just as Kevin's, I think, story uh, and you could pull out all the different reasons why anybody who happens to be listening to this podcast is a veteran or is active duty or reserve or National Guard or thinking about um, transitioning from the military into the civilian sector. It doesn't have to be the corporate sector. Right. He happens to be UPS. I happen to be Citigroup, big financial services uh, firm. There are translatable skills 
The question is whether or not you can identify what those are, and then when you have the opportunity to showcase those, either be in an interview or a networking engagement, you got to be ready, mm-hmm. right? And as I, as I say, just a quick sort of teaching point is every conversation that you have that is not inside the military domain, right, is an interview of some sort. Mm. It's an interview as to, oh, should I hire this person? Should I recommend this person to somebody else in my firm or my company to hire? Or should I open up my network, Mm. right? Because the minute you start to open up your network as maybe you're another veteran or you're a civilian, you are putting your own reputation on the line. So every every opportunity is is an interview Mm. um, or exposure outside the military. Scott, you asked me the question as to, you know, how did my transition go? I think it is... It's going to sound um, like, well, wait a second, John. You know, you were your last job in the military. You were an active duty Army colonel, Mm. uh, full colonel, working at the White House, first for President Bush, leading uh, his national security policy on Mm. Iraq. And then you transitioned uh, when President Obama, because it was at the transition point, and then you transitioned to supporting President Obama and eventually becoming his senior advisor for Afghanistan and Pakistan. Mm. Wow. Look, there aren't that many of the jobs out there, John, that uh, we, we can't all necessarily. <laughs> it's a little bit of a niche. Yeah, right, right. It's like, that might be a short list of one. So not sure. I'm going to stop listing this guy right now. Let's go back to Kevin and the Marine stories. Uh, I, I will say this. What I've, everybody has a translatable skill that you learned in the military that will translate into the civilian sector. My story, I will agree with Kevin. I'm nothing special. I have a story. And the teaching point is you have those skills that are translatable. And it turns out one of the reasons that they wanted me, why I was hired by the White House to come in through the uh, active duty military Pentagon nomination mm. uh, to the National Security Council was many of the things that I already done in the military. I, I had served in combat as a battalion commander, Task Force 237 Armor, first Talafer up in the northwest, and then uh, the northern part of Ramadi uh, and uh, in Al Anbar province in Iraq. So that was 2006, 2007. Mm. And when it was time in the, in the Bush administration to their great credit said, Hey, look, we need on the ground experts to come in here and, and, and provide uh, that kind of focus and that kind of uh, knowledge to help inform our policy. Yeah. You also have to understand the way the national security, uh, uh, security policy process works. You have to have some political science background. So I had that from when I taught up at West Point. But you package those two things together, uh, and then you have the opportunity to be able to communicate in writing, Mm. communicating voice uh, over the phone, and in a large part, communicate in in person. They're looking for leaders who have those capabilities and capacities. They presume you're going to come in here, you have the political science background, the national Mm. security policy background, but they want those soft skills that allow you to be able to execute in some really difficult environments. And I will tell you that my lieutenants, my captains, my sergeants, some of my really high-speed E4, my corporals, right, who were having to deal with some very difficult situations in the post-9-11 military in the counterinsurgency environment where they were, you know, block captains or community mayors, right, dealing with Iraqi sheikhs and sometimes Iraqi uh, police and army and, and some of those folks, right, even though they were supposed to be our allies, weren't always, right? That's the nature of the counterinsurgency. And we were asking E-4s to O-3s to execute those missions on a daily basis. I happened to do it at an O-5 level when Mm -hmm. I was a battalion commander. It really skills you in a way 
that allows you, or at least me in that case in Washington, D.C., to command a room, right? To command a conversation and see all the different aspects of who, all the different competing agendas. Uh, I work at, at, at Citigroup today, and uh, I do a fair bit of uh, business development, client management, partnership management, uh, internal stakeholder things. And we, you know, we're a big company, 220,000 people, biggest uh, financial services company in the world. So there's a lot of complexity involved. Mm. Uh, and many of those skills, all those things that I just spoke about that I learned largely by being a battalion commander in combat and then having to deal with competing agendas, right? And just because agendas compete doesn't mean that none of those, that any one of those agendas are better. It's usually a plurality of what is optimal. I learned all of that being a battalion commander and then working at the White House as an 06 in uniform, working for two different presidents. So mm. you asked me about the transition. When it was my turn to consider everybody's got to retire at some point, right? Even the chairman of Joint Chief of Staff, the senior sergeant major in the Army, they're all going to retire at some point. Mine happened to be when I was in 06, and I was confronted with the question, do I continue doing policy work as a civilian, or do I throw my hat in the ring and see what's out there? Mm. And fortunately, when I threw my hat in the, into the civilian sector ring, uh, you, know, you can be lucky and good, and, and you want timing, right? I happened to do it right as we were all coming out of the financial crisis in 2011, and I got a really nice open reception who said, when I went to Citigroup, they go, after about an hour and a half and a couple of different interviews, they looked at me and said, you would be great in our global strategy shop uh, because what you've done for the president of the United States is take global strategy, put it through a filter, an intellectual filter, a common sense filter, and then figure out how does this get implemented at the local level. For Citigroup, it happens to be global and then pushed out to 200 big urban environments, 40 different countries. And I said, okay, as long as you teach me the banking portion of it, right, I'll be squared away. It might take me a few months. Uh, and that's, that's essentially how it's executed eight years later. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm, still, I'm still retained and, and paid by Citigroup, mm. great company. And in many ways, I'll, I'll just do a quick public service announcement about mm. Citigroup. They're in the same way. They, they are very much uh, focused. Citigroup is very much focused on the community, local, national, and global. And for me, it was very fortunate that about a week after I entered Citigroup, they, they turned to me and said, hey, we just joined this thing called Joining Forces, which is something that Michelle Obama and Dr. Biden were going to start up as like their signature thing, Joining Forces. It was going to bring all corporate America together in support of uh, really having the veterans unemployment rate, which was about 15% in uh, 2010. Uh, and so we're going to try and have that. And in fact, they did, and it's actually the veterans unemployment rate is lower than the national unemployment rate. Underemployment is still an issue, right? Not always the perfect fit. But they called me and said, so we just, Citigroup said, we just joined this. You're a veteran. I said, I've been a veteran for a week. So <laughs> I, I go, if you, if you, if you need, it, and then the CEO is about to go to the White House. And I said, if you're going to ask me to give you talking points about veteran stuff, I said, I'm not sure I can do that. If you want me to drive the CEO of Citigroup and an M1A1 Abrams to down to the White House from New York City, I can do that, right? <laughs> uh, they're like, we don't want to hear that. Give us some talking points. Tell us what it's like to be a veteran. And, you know, being a little bit funny and uh, overly humorous here, but it, it worked out. And that was eight years ago, and we, mm. we've created City Salutes, which is takes a look and says, how do we hire, uh, retain, and promote more veterans than we're doing today, more than the industry average, which we do, 
uh, and financial services? And then how do we give back within our communities and allow um, sort of a higher tide to lift all boats in terms of community goodwill? So mm-hmm. that's my story. That's where I'm at now. Love that. So we're going to make a hard right turn here because uh, we've we've got to we're, we're changing up a little bit. I, I love how uh, we have planned to ask some fun questions as part of this podcast mm-hmm. conversation. So uh, some we may surprise you with, others hopefully you've may have had a sneak peek at the question. Uh, so we're going to do something a little different. This is going to be the speed round, okay? Uh, and I hate in, in one of the comment. I feel like we're going from something very heavy to something very light, and I'm trying to, how can we make it easiest segue as possible? <laughs> so stick with me here. So we are going to pose a series of questions to each of y'all and, and give us your speed round answers here, mm. okay? Uh, first question, and John, we're going to start with you. Uh, who are your three favorite historic U.S. military leaders? Three favorite U.S. U.S. historic military figures. Uh, let's 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 uh, let's make sure we choose somebody from every era as best <laughs> I can here. Don't want to all lump it into uh, one particular war. Uh, I, I heard Kevin talking about uh, his love for the Civil War, so I'll go with. Uh, and since I'm going first, right? Yes, so I, I'm going to take it away from you. Is uh, jo- Colonel Joshua Chamberlain? Oh, is on my list. Yes, Doctor <laughs> Chamberlain, Little Round Top, yeah. and I loved out. I loved how he uh, came down the hill, you know, full charge ahead against uh, against the southern forces they came up at Gettysburg. Mm. Uh, second one would be, I just went to the Philippines uh, on behalf of Citigroup to do some work over there in the contact centers, and I got a, I took an extra day, and I toured uh, all of that, uh, mm. Bataan and Corregidor, and uh, somebody who I'd always followed before uh, because we were both uh, first captains at West Point, uh, mm. General Wainwright, mm. uh, who, who essentially stayed behind uh, when all the U.S. forces left and went through the Bataan Death March and was eventually a Medal of Honor recipient, Jonathan Wainwright. And then uh, for a third one, I'll, I'll move up to my era, uh, a guy who I've been talking a lot about, so I've gotten this asked this question, who's one of my heroes, mm. is a guy named uh, Staff Sergeant Army, Staff Sergeant Retired, Sal Ginta, Quinta, mm. uh, and he wrote a book, um, Living with Honor, and he is a Medal of Honor recipient from mm. the Afghanistan War. Sal Ginta, Living with Honor. It's a great book. It starts off with him talking about being a sandwich artist in Subway as a high schooler. So he was saying, I'm an average high schooler, which he was. I, I met him. And he goes, yeah, I, I can see that. You would have been average high school. <laughs> but it turns out he's a great American hero. So mm. Staff Sergeant Retired Army, Sal Ginta. Fantastic. Kevin, same question. Well, thanks. You took all three of mine, so I'll <laughs> pass to Lloyd. I, um, uh, I already mentioned General Mattis. Right. I, I think he's a, a modern, if not a historic figure, he's historical, certainly. And he's had a huge impact on American military and uh, uh, current Washington scene. The uh, I, I have a pension for the Civil War, um, and I think General Grant probably has not been given his, his real due, both as a general and um, as a as a president, and, and my segue on this is, I love Washington D.C. Uh, uh, one of my kids went to school there. If I had a, uh, a zillion dollars, I would live there. I just love that. I get chills up and down my spine. I know that sounds corny, but every time I go there, I do. The most profound statue there, after the Iwo Jima Memorial, thank you very much, is the uh, the statue of Grant uh, facing. Uh, on the west side of the Capitol, and he has two other statues flanking him of soldiers in different forms of distress. And he's facing the Lincoln Memorial. His, he's on a horse, and and it looks like he's in the ring because he's wearing a, a large, wide-brimmed hat and a slicker, but he's looking down Pennsylvania Avenue. It's one of the largest uh, equestrian statues, actually, in, mm. in the United States. And I think that that's probably my favorite 
piece, and I think that tells everything you need to know about a man who weathered the storm, succeeded, and he still keeps an eye on who's the occupant in the White House mm. uh, and uh, as a matter of accountability, I think. Mm. Um, lastly, is uh, so everybody glosses over Eisenhower. Uh, Eisenhower was a very consequential figure in the 20th century, uh, next to people like Reagan and MacArthur and uh, uh, even John Paul II, Mother Teresa. Uh, you know, there's, I mean, really, uh, Churchill, of course, is one of our great ones, but he's not necessarily a military leader. But I think Eisenhower's military successes and the risks he took and the way he managed mm. uh, with soft skills that mm-hmm. John spoke so well about. It's, uh, you, you, don't, you don't get the job because you have soft skills. You're successful in the job because you have soft skills, and, and people thought that he was the right person for that job. So uh, a most consequential figure uh, militarily and politically, yeah. Well put. So so for me, uh, George Washington. I think, yeah, George Washington was is, is an amazing military leader. Joshua Chamberlain, you yeah. say he stole Joshua <laughs> Chamberlain. The, uh, yeah. Governor of Maine, you know, whoever that, you yeah. know, the, uh, he would be an incredible leader like that. And then the last one is the GI General. Omar Bradley, oh, yeah, right. and 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 really to talk about often overlooked is is Omar Bradley. Mm. All right, next question, and we're gonna try to speed these up a little more. Yep. Uh, so back to you, John. What is your favorite military book? Uh, when Kevin was talking, I, it popped in my head "Killer Angels" by Michael Shera. It is fictional, but uh, it, it won the Pulitzer Prize. Mike, uh, "Killer Angels" Michael Shera. Okay. Besides my books? Yes. Um, Killer yeah. Angels. It's written right there on my <laughs> I, I took the notes. Yeah. It's Killer Angels. Really? Absolutely. Wow. Wow. I've got to read the book. Band of Brothers. Uh, that's good. Good. Sweet. You're good. All right. Uh, let's reverse it. And Betty Lloyd, what's your favorite military movie? Sergeant York. Sergeant York. So, so Sergeant York. Yeah. Gary Cooper. Yeah. Outstanding. Yeah, great movie. Kevin. Paths of Glory. 1957. Stanley Kubrick's first film. Black and white. Mm. By far, it was one of my favorite movies. Mm. Not just a military movie. Wow. These are good calls. Uh, we Were Soldiers Once and Young. Battalion oh, Commander yeah. in Combat. Excellent movie. That's a good one. Uh, Forrest Gump. Love Forrest nice. Gump. We, a member of our team. We just found out the other day. I, I kind of had a, a, a getting old moment. We were all talking about our favorite movies at lunch and we had one of our team members that hadn't heard or hadn't watched maybe hadn't heard certainly hadn't watched Forrest Gump and I was like wow <laughs> you know came out in 94 so it makes sense yeah. but uh, anyway uh, what was one John back with you what was one of the best places the military ever sent you so I'm not going to choose sort of the military pose my okay. wife would be like oh you know choose this particular place but uh, I'll say it was a deployment but not a combat deployment it was because of post 9-11 the army sent me and a team of others uh, observer controllers from the National Training Center to Israel mm. to learn how to deal with insurgents. It mm. was fascinating. Now, the Israeli army could do some things legally that we're not allowed to, so <laughs> I, uh, I, brought, I put those in the appendix to Israel. <laughs> Kevin, uh, I, we, I served for about two and a half years in Camp Pendleton, California, and it, it's a great place. It's just a, it's a great place. Training's hard, and, and, but life was wonderful. It mm. really was. I, I, I loved that time there. Mm. So oh, I, I was a crew member. I was really lucky. I got to go to – I traveled to 65 countries. So one of the coolest places the uh, Air Force sent me was the Easter Island. Okay, yeah, man. Oh, that was cool. Hopefully you brought back plenty of pictures. Oh, uh, yeah. Iconic. <laughs> Maybe not. Kevin, the Air Force gets to go to cool places, man. You know? <laughs> All right, last one. Uh, I'm skipping ahead uh, for the sake of time. Who is the most famous, John, who's the most famous service member or veteran you've ever met? Uh 
Or the or your favorite one you've ever met? No, I you know historically famous is probably a guy. I mean, if you were to Google people and how many hits do you get, it's probably mm. William Westmoreland. He was a he was the Army four star Mac V Vietnam commander. He was probably two years from from his dying, mm. and I was a senior cadet at West Point, and he came up to me and he said, "You're about to become the first in your class at West Point," which was very strange for him in some ways. I'm not Vietnamese, but I am Asian American, and here's a guy who essentially made his fame mm. fighting a, an Asian war, and he spent about two hours with me, giving me some really what I needed, definitely some really good early uh, leadership guidance. Mm. Wow, Kevin. Uh, I met. I had the good fortune of meeting James Webb, who, the yeah. former Undersecretary of the Navy and former Senator from Virginia. I was uh, attending the first Marine Corps Scout Sniper School in the fall of 1980, and he came down to Quantico just to have beers with us. Nice. And he paid the bill. So he was one of my favorite <laughs> famous guy. people. Yeah, Great guy. guy, too. Tremendous guy. guy. So I, I, uh, I was at the Air Force Flight Test Center at Edwards, California, for, a, uh, for five years. And I got to fly in the air show three years with Chuck Yeager. Mm. Nice. So, wow. Which was pretty cool. Dang. Wow. Uh, all right. So Veterans Day is right around the corner. Uh, somber occasion. Uh, it's also a day of service for many. Um, I think we're going to be together at VEO, I believe. Oh, no, it's Thanksgiving. I'm getting ahead of yeah. Gosh, get ahead of myself. <laughs> Regardless, uh, Kevin and John, why is Veterans Day so important to you? And and let's start with Kevin. I I, I think it belongs to everyone. It uh, I I only I served because it was not a career. It was just something I I needed to do. So I would guess I. It, I, I see myself as a minimalist with these things. I like the small ceremonies. I like the local mm-hmm. ceremonies. I like things that are done uh, within an office environment, with a small company environment, uh, even a community. Uh, it's it's not unlike the 4th of July. 4th of July belongs to everybody. Veterans Day belongs to us, but I still think that Veterans Day does belong to everybody. Mm-hmm. John? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a chance and an obligation to remember. Uh, four of my soldiers who didn't come back with me. Mm-hmm. Should always be remembered. Everybody else should be remembering uh, them as well. I always, you know, restate their names. You know, Ricky Solis, Jody Misseldine, Emmanuel Legaspi, and Doug Desjardins. They never came back. Mm. So that's why we should uh, think about Veterans Day in the special way we do. Mm. I couldn't think of a better answer. Okay, so I want to ask you all another question. So one of the things Lloyd and I talked about when we started planning this episode was relating logistic stories, you know, because this is Supply Chain I Radio. We, we take a lot of artistic license mm-hmm. because we love – uh, we love these, this conversation we're having right now. I mean, this is, this is why we do this. So many folks need to hear, I think, a lot of perspective that, that each of y'all have shared. Um, but can you tell, uh, and, and Kevin, I'll start with you. Can, you. can each of you tell us what you believe is one of the biggest logistics feats that the U.S. military has ever pulled off? Well, at the risk of making an editorial comment, the military invented logistics. All right. Okay. So you can start with Hannibal, right? Uh, going over the Alps with elephants. <laughs> and not the A team. Uh, right. Uh, but, uh, and I, I think the Romans probably have taught us most of what we know about logistics. But it, I, clearly the one modern day that counts is uh, not D Day, but D plus one, mm. D plus two, D mm. plus three. And those. Being able to defeat the defeat the juggernaut of the German army in World War II, a lot of people look at it like it's a footnote in history. It's not. They were going to win. They were going to, you know, we'd all be speaking German right now, and I, I don't think that should be taken lightly. So the logistics for just D-Day alone was the reason why it succeeded. Yeah, great point. John? You know, it's um, one of the things I got to do uh, when I was a young lieutenant, and Lloyd talked a little bit about it before, when I, when I saw Sergeant Major Rowley at a dinner here at Emory University for their Vet Connect dinner, 
was Operation Desert Storm. And as a lieutenant, uh, I was a scout. One of my jobs was a scout platoon leader. So we were in the the the, the left flank battalion of the left flank uh, brigade of the left flank division of the Seventh Corps. And so uh, General Frank, Seventh Corps commander, did this encircling movement, right? Mm-hmm. This big left hook uh, you know, that they called it, and. And you would say, okay, well, that's fine, right? You know, they knew what they had to do. They knew what the path was and everything. It was just a rate times distance type deal. Got to keep the fuel moving, everything. But remember that we did that using M1A1 Abrams tanks, Mm. Bradley fighting vehicles, Apache helicopters. This was a force that was focused and designed and and funded to fight the Cold War Mm. or the Cold War if it went hot. If anybody came, the Russians or the Czechoslovakians came across the border or came over the Berlin Wall, which that is a very different logistics fight because you can have these fuel points everywhere and these food points, Mm. and it's about pivoting off of a center point. This was converting that force and doing something very different. And when I think about, and I said it before about translatable skills for veterans, all of the veterans, anybody who's listening now, or if you're active duty, right, reserve or National Guard, one thing that you're really good at is project management. Mm. It doesn't sound sexy, but you are very good at project management. Mm. I will tell you, you understand critical path, you understand risk management, and you have to take those kinds of concepts and be able to tell your stories in such a way that when you do your interview, whether it's at a barbecue or if it's in, a, in an interview with your, with your tie in the Windsor Four, you got to be able to tell that skill and say, and then tell in such a way, because they'll be listening to you going, tell me some more about this war mm. story, and then say, and that's why I'm good at project management. Mm. Mm. So, for, so for me, I've been in, essentially in the international air freight business for, for 32 years. That's right. You know, 12 <laughs> years at UPS and 20 in the Air Force where I was a loadmaster. And, and so I've got to lean on that. You know, the, uh, I, I think one of the tremendous success and efforts was Operation Vittles which people commonly refer to as the Berlin Airlift. Yes. You know, the on June 24th, 1948, the Soviets blocked all rail, road, and electricity coming into the uh, Berlin. The only way into the city was to fly, was air freight. The uh, blockade lasted over 10 months. And mm. Can you imagine that? A city, a major world city the size of Berlin that was totally cut off mm. for, for 10 months. So it had to be supported. We could not let, you know, that Iron Curtain go around the uh, Berlin and, and envelop Berlin. So the uh, so we did it. And our uh, the uh, the military, uh, U.S. military and our allies um, during that ten months. This is incredible. Over a hundred and twenty-four million miles were flown. Over two hundred and seventy-seven thousand sorties by six hundred and eighty-nine uh, U.S. and ally aircraft. The normal daily requirement of food was 2,000 tons a day that Mm -hmm. had to uh, show up. And Mm -hmm. one of the incredible things in my research I read was uh, the population there was actually getting more calories per day than (laughs) the population of London. Wow. So they were uh, 2,300 calories a day on the average. um, Each family received 25 to 30 pounds of coal per month. Uh, some of the stuff I was reading, they said the average airplane that was hauling coal was 100 pounds heavier than you know, when it was done with the airlift because of coal dust in that aircraft, <laughs> which is incredible. So the uh, uh, 39 British, 31 Americans, and 13 German civilians lost their lives mm. in the Berlin airlift. However, that blockade 
by uh, by the Soviets proved to be futile because of the tremendous efforts of, of the U.S. and our allies. The blockade quickly ramped up Cold War tensions, and most of the world saw the Soviet Union as a cruel state and a uh, really a contentious enemy. The Soviets' quagmire sped up the formation of West Germany and motivated the creation of a uh, of NATO, and that's why we love logistics. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so y'all took a couple of mine. Berlin Airlift, uh, D-Day, of course. I think the sheer uh, – I'm always amazed, especially as movie technology gets better and better, where it, it continues to give a realistic scope of just the scope of that. And, and, and not just D-Day, but as, as you put it, Kevin, those next following days. I mean, the sheer scope of that is – it reminds me of the ports. When you go down to ports, you can't, you can't wrap your head around it until you go down there and see the scale of that. Um, the Persian Gulf War – Gulf War One, that buildup and that massive buildup in a short amount of time, uh, but you, you know I think U.S. military strength is built on the principle of projecting force, and you can't project force and you can, unless you can supply it. So the things that go on day in and day out of uh, uh, being able to protect our national interest and and of course uh, ensure national security. I mean, that's why not only do we have the world's number one military, but the world's number one supply chain team. And, and Kevin, you, you put it well. Uh, General Robert H. Barrow, uh, anyone know who that is? Marine Corps. Yes. Former commandant. Yes, yeah. yes. He he is attributed this quote, and I had to Google this more than once to make sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, am, quote, amateurs talk about tactics, but professionals study logistics. Yes. He was quoted that in 1980, and that, that says it all in many ways. Okay, so let's pivot one more time. Uh, rather than looking back historically, mm-hmm. let's think about your time in the military and any logistics feats that your teams pulled off and you were part of. Any of those come to mind? Yeah, I've, I've got a great one. So, the uh, you know, I was a... Um Although I was an, uh, an aviator, a loadmaster, I had some special assignments, and, and I was stationed in Germany for, for five years in what's called the TALSI. And the TALSI is the Deployable Mobile Command and Control mm-hmm. Unit. And I deployed a, uh, during a um, – to Trapani, uh, Italy, in, which is in Sicily during Allied Force, which was the NATO operation uh, against the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia during mm-hmm. the Kosovo War. And, and directly uh, against President Slovan and Milosevic. Uh, the airstrikes started in, in March uh, 24th, 1999, and, and lasted in, until mid-June. And I was deployed to a, really a small Italian base, but it was really a commercial airport. Mm. And we supported three uh, A-10 guard units, the A-10 Thunderbolt, that deployed in, into Trapani. And they, um, uh, I took a team of 15. And a uh, in there to run command and control and, and essentially aerial port operations, and it, whether it was uh, beans, bullets, bombs, people, you know, my my team controlled it. And um, I, I was the NCOIC, which is a uh, for those non-military types, it's, it's essentially the sergeant that was in charge. And a, uh, we just made it happen. I've I've never worked so hard in my life. And a, uh, there was a, one of my favorite stories is there was a, a checklist in, in one of our uh, regulations that talks about engine running offloads of airplanes with uh, explosives on board. Mm. And we always looked at it like, ah, oh, we'll never do that. Mm. So that's this is never going to happen. <laughs> and, and, and there I was. So it was a small airfield. And a, uh, these A-10s were leaving every morning 
fully hung with everything uh, and then <laughs> everything, and, everything yeah. and, and coming back with nothing. Ooh. So actually they were coming back mm. with, with just two Sidewinder missiles. Right. So they were expending ordnance very quickly and mm. everything was flown in mm. and, and my team was handling it. So we were working a uh, eight C-130s a day that were full of tens of thousands of pounds of bombs. Mm. I was backing these C-130s down a, a long uh, remote taxiway because we couldn't even we wanted to get it as far away and okay. and doing these uh, these offloads and while we we're doing those offloads of the c-130s we had a c-17 parked on the runway and we we're doing engine running offloads on the runway because it was too big and heavy to go onto the taxiways Jeez. and they, um, one of the things i really remember is we work in some really long hours and, mm. and and one of my troops was so tired and we took a break, and he had a cup of noodle soup, and he was so tired he couldn't boil the water in his hot cup, and he poured coffee into it, uh-huh. and, 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 and he ate that. And a uh, so twofer, so yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and and a uh, we we worked so hard, we, we made it happen. It was mm. really one of the my proudest uh, moments of mm. outside of the airplane. And they uh, then I went back home. I spent about two weeks in the uh, back home with, with the wife and a little bit of time off, and then I was right back on the road into Moron, Spain, uh, supporting the Airbridge operation for mm. for Allied Force, which is a the Airbridge is a, a great logistical effort mm. as well. Awesome! Wow, Kevin or John, who who'd like to follow? Well, I, I, I got to tell you, I, I I can't follow that. Uh, Lloyd touched on one thing: um, uh, sergeants. Sergeants run the Marine Corps. Uh, my quick story on a logistical success was something what I I did not do, except what I was told. When I first reported to our unit, I met my platoon sergeant. Uh, and this is uh, uh, December of 1980. I met the platoon sergeant. I knew him for about eight seconds. And then privately he said to me, Lieutenant, I like you. <laughs> and I said, that's, that's, that's great. That's, that's nice, Staff Sergeant. And he goes, look, if you say nothing to anybody in our platoon for two weeks, we'll be the regimental honor platoon. I guarantee it. I said, okay, Staff Sergeant Benevente, God rest his soul, he's gone now. Mm. And he was good to his word. So I learned something very valuable then. I have no logistical successes. Again, I just had a proverbial cup of coffee for five years. (laughs) But if I needed something done, I talked to my sergeants, and they got it done. They run the Marine Corps, including deployments. And uh, I was grateful for that. Absolutely. John, how about yourself? It's a uh, it was a post 9-11 story um, where I was a battalion commander in Iraq. And I, I don't know if you remember, I mentioned in my, when we were doing the introduction piece mm. where I was in two different cities, Task Force 237 Armor. First, we were in Talafer, which is the northwest portion of Iraq, and our mission was to interdict uh, the, the rat lines of al-Qaeda mm. coming in from Syria. And then we got this new mission, right? The, the ultimate frago came with an extension in, in country, mm. uh, another six months in, in Iraq. Always never good news, right, uh, for anybody. Mm. Uh, and they said, well, now we're going to Ramadi. So that's like going from the, it's about a 500-mile trip. And we had to move an entire battalion where we had really settled into our base mm. of operations, even though we were deployed forward uh, with our combat power, all of our logistics, our helmets, our trucks, 42 tanks, 14 Bradley fighting vehicles, uh, some light mortars, right? We had to move all of that. 
And you would say, okay, again, John, that's a right, right time distance thing. You've got to get your fuel and everything. But then you have to do it. And, again, in the military, we're doing it in, in, um, in this particular situation in combat conditions, right? So now you, ent- you enter into the equation all of these things, which are not things that you cannot uh, do an equation for, which mm-hmm. is where will the enemy put the improvised explosive device? Is that civilian convoy that's coming up against you? Are they are they VBIEDs, vehicle-borne explosive improvised devices? Mm-hmm. Um, and and there's a finite amount of paved roads that you can get all these places through. This is why I and I agree with General Barrow's uh, commentary and quote. And I've heard that before, which is you really have to. Uh, for logistics, it isn't just about doing the math. And we've got, you know, you guys are pro logisticians. I'm just an amateur at best. But one of the things that you as logisticians, I think, have to account for all the time and why I think military guys and gals make great logisticians is you've had to account for the uh, unknown unknown, right? And you have to figure out where that's going to be and where are your risk factors, both for planning and also, at least in this case, in combat conditions for uh, mortality. Mm. Man. Answer. We could keep – I'd love to dive more and, and add three or four more hours to the show. This is it's fascinating, right, because we think of everything that the military has accomplished and what it takes to make that happen. I appreciate you all uh, sharing some of your memories there. All right, so let's wrap up probably where we should, which is with Veterans Day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's so much that you could do, so uh, you know, all kinds of different things. But uh, for folks that really want it in a very meaningful way or in a way maybe that might open up their eyes and might give them a different appreciation for – uh, those that have made the sacrifice. How can you suggest to our viewers to, to pay tribute during Veterans Day? What would you all suggest our listeners do to spend that day? I'll, I'll, I'll go first. And, and one of the things is not just on Veterans Day. So for Veterans Day, absolutely. Focus on Veterans Day. I often say, you know, people go, what can I do? I don't want to go out. And I said, well, well number one is go to a Veterans Day ceremony, right? There's going to be a parade. There's going to be a flag raising. There's going to be something at a monument. Go find out, and it's local. You don't even have to go that far. Because just, and I like what Kevin said before when he said Veterans Day is, is the nation's day as well, right? So we, we actually, in many cases, don't want to be, oh, we're, we're veterans, it's okay. But in this case, the veterans who show up there, it feels really good, and it feels good for me as well, when there are civilians who are not veterans, maybe they're family members who come out and acknowledge that. So that's one way to do it, or you could put flags out. Or you can maybe find out a way to volunteer where, you know, many of us on Thanksgiving mm-hmm. will we'll go uh, with a veterans homeless shelter here, the Veterans Empowerment Organization mm-hmm. here in Atlanta. But one of the things you can do between vet November 11th and November 10th, right, of the next year of November 10th, 2020, is go find an organization like the Mission Continues. Now, I happen to be the former board chair, so I'm, you know, I'm a little bit uh, overly thumbs up on it. But it's an organization that volunteers. You have a Mission Continues platoon. It's made up the vast majority are veterans, men and women, but they take civilians as well. And what they do is they go find the most pressing problem out in their community, and they tackle it with usually with uh, sweat equity uh, and with a lot of support, if it's tools or something like that, from places like the Home Depot, mm. Lumber, and things of that nature. Go out there and volunteer alongside the veterans. You're paying respect to the veterans. I think you and your family members, especially the children, will get a lift by uh, – you know, having these folks continuing to serve. That's the mm-hmm. mission continues. And they're in every city where the NFL is. Outstanding. Kevin. Ditto. 
<laughs> I, I can't add to that. That's yeah. that's exactly what you should be doing. Uh, Outstanding. Yeah, volunteerism is great. Love it. You know, serve it. I always try to press people too. I'm like, hey, recognize Veterans Day in May, because mm-hmm. <laughs> because the the USO has ten thousand volunteers for mm-hmm. the for the month of November. I do want to point out one thing though. John is probably the only one who could still get in his uniform. <laughs> right, so if there's any parades yeah. going on, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, Kevin. You wear the hat. <laughs> so so the, the 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 one thing I have to say is show love to your country, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know we. We we sacrifice for this country, and and mm. in, in today's environment, man, people are so quick to to put down our great country. And mm. so, so for the love of country, reach out and pay respect to that flag. I can tell you that's one of the traditions I started at UPS mm. on Veterans Day. We at eight o'clock in the morning, the building comes out, and we raise that flag and, and show uh, the support of our our, our great country. Mm. Yeah, great point. We, we like to celebrate our differences, but we need. Uh, of days like Veterans Day to come together, even for a, a brief, fresh breath of air from everything else that goes on. So great point there. Um, and one other uh, comment, Veterans Day for all those that have served, Memorial Day for those that have made the ultimate sacrifice. I think oftentimes that gets lost, up, lost a little bit in the shuffle because everyone wants to, you know. Don't give, wish anybody a happy Memorial Day, please. There we go. <laughs> yeah, that, you know. The great thing is everyone wants to give back and memorialize, but those are those are two separate, very separate occasions. So, okay, what a great conversation! I mean, thanks so much on this rainy Atlanta day, which I thought the roof might come in for a second <laughs> ago. But uh, fascinating! I really appreciate what y'all have done and how you've served, and and uh, and then taking time to come share that with our listeners here. Uh, hopefully, our audience has joined it, uh, enjoyed it as much as I know Lloyd and I did. I loved it. I did too. Um, before we wrap up on some events we're going to be at, uh, Vetlanta's got the next big summit coming up soon. Man, Boy, I, I, I've got uh, 20 yeah, events that I'm attending or supporting in 25 days. So we've got a lot going on. Uh, go take a look at vetlanta.org. We got a uh, Vet Talks. Uh, which is going to be on on Tuesday, which is a lot like TED Talks Mm. in partnership with the uh, VA. We got our next summit, uh, which the Georgia National Guard is hosting on uh, December 11th. We're volunteering. We're giving back to the community. We're we're showing up in in force. So lots of great things going on. Outstanding. Okay. uh, Lloyd, Kevin, or Lloyd, Kevin, and John, thank you all very much. Sit sit tight for just a second as we wrap up today. Uh, To our audience, uh, we welcome you to come out and check us out in person. Uh, We're going to be in Austin next week with the Logistics CIO Forum with our friends over at EFT, which is now part of the Reuters organization. Uh, We're going to be in January at the CSCMP Atlanta Roundtable, where we're going to have a member of the NASTREC organization come out and talk about some of the regulations that that have been enacted uh, and then their impact on the transportation industry. Uh, the Reverse Logistics Association Conference and Expo out in Vegas, of all places, is going to be tough to you know, put some blinders on and get work done out there, right? In February 2020, you can check them, their, par- those partners out at rla.org. And, of course, Modex 2020 coming back to Atlanta. Uh, you know, MHI puts ProMat up in Chicago uh, one year. The very next year, they bring Modex to Atlanta. It goes back and forth. One of the largest supply chain trade shows in the country. 35,000 folks. It's incredible. Is, is what they're expecting. Uh, one of the large, largest shows in North America. It's impressive. Uh, and it's free to attend, which is what a deal. I'm so networking, <laughs> best practice sharing, uh, market intelligence, you name it. You can learn more at modexshow.com. 
they have been great partners to us. We're going to broadcast throughout four, the four days there, and they're hosting our 2020 Atlanta Supply Chain Awards where we're going to be celebrating a lot of the logistics feats just in a different way that we heard about today. Uh, and you can learn more about that at atlantasupplychainawards.com. Okay, uh, if there's anything that you cannot find that we've talked about today, shoot us a note to connect at Supply Chain Our Radio. We will do our best to serve as a resource for you. Big thanks to our guests today. Home run conversation. Thanks so much, John Tien, uh, Citigroup, Kevin Horgan, former UPSer and Vetlanta board member, and Lloyd Knight with UPS and Vetlanta, uh, founder and president of Vetlanta. And you can learn more about Vetlanta at vetlanta.org. Got All right. It. I always want to put this dot org, <laughs> vetlanta.org. To our audience, be sure to check out other upcoming events, replays over interviews, other resources at supplychainnowradio.com. Again, find us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, YouTube, wherever else you get your podcast from. We'd love to have you subscribe so you don't miss anything. On behalf of the entire team, this is Scott Luton wishing you a wonderful week ahead, and we will see you next time on Supply Chain Now Radio. Thanks, everybody.